Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Real excited to talk to my guest today. I always like talking to this person. He is one of the most engaging, fascinating people to talk to. Just if you run into him in a hallway, which for lots of years we ended up talking, we would run each other, run into each other in, in hallways uh, when we were both sort of music business adjacent and then as we became uh, film business uh, people. Randy Poster, who is my guest today, you, you see on the credits as Randall Poster, is one of one when it comes to music supervision. He is far and away the best music supervisor during the period that I have been in the business and in fact has, I think, like reinvented what it means to be somebody who does that for a living. He's also a producer in his own right and a writer in his own right. But the way most people would know Randy is by the work he's done with directors like Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson and Todd Phillips and Todd Haynes. And I thought it would be awesome to hear from somebody who does a job that has an enormous influence on the final thing that we all watch, even though one may not really even be aware of what that gig is. And, um, you know, Randy Poster, man, it's great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. You're too kind. Um, I am, but in this case, I do mean it all. Randy, dude, like when you were growing up, in you grew up in Brooklyn and but when no, I grew up in Riverdale in the Bronx. I mean, I meant that in the Bronx, and you went to school there too in the Bronx, right? Growing growing up, yeah. and that was like a lot of Manhattan kids going to those schools up on the hill there right. in, in the Bronx, right? What uh, what was kind of like, exp and you know, you went into Ivy League school, which we'll talk about, but. I'm always interested in this people who find their way to join the circus like we all have. Like, it was just not what was expected usually. So like, what, what, what do you think was expected of you when you were growing up in that environment? Well, I mean, I think, you know, like many of us who, um, you know, came from, you know, my, my parents were, Really, my father was like a first generation American. My my mother, her her mother had been born in New York, but she she and she grew up in New York. But her father was born in Austria. You know, I mean, there was the, right. the thought that you know one would become a doctor or a lawyer, right? So yeah, I, I was yes. always in the ether. But really, you know, growing up in New York City during the sixties and the seventies, late sixties and the seventies it was sort of a golden era in both music and in movies. And there were so many movie theaters and we were in an all boys school. And so, you know, it was really on a weekend, me and my friend, Michael Dubin and I, my friends, Michael Dubin and I realized we would go see five movies in a weekend. Right. Or I would come home from school and my sister and I would watch the four thirty movie and, and, and just listening to, you know, records on a, on a phonograph, on a cassette player, whatever else it was. So it was really um, my, my, my professional ambitions were pretty ambiguous. You know, I really, I, I really had no plan. I just love music and movies and somehow those passions came together and, and I found myself you know, workings on the music end of movies. Right. But I t talk a little more. I've, I will say like, so when I was a kid growing up on Long Island, and even though my dad worked in music, they, and occasionally I would have access to stuff like the creative side. Like I got to go to recording studios with him, but yeah. I had no Hollywood lifestyles stuff. And in fact, like when I would come into the city, all of you, you're a couple years older than I am, but it's still generationally we hung with, you know, we, we, we understand what the touchstones were. Right. Like the level of sophistication that New York City kids had was so far beyond anything that we had because right in Long Island, your parents had to drive you places. Right. But you could get on the train and just go, right? right. Talk a little bit more about like, um, I mean, I always think about this in, in, in the context of the Beasties and how the Beasties became these cultural sophisticates because they were living in a city that was built for it. So like, talk a little more about how you would venture out and what it felt like to be like a little person with yeah. the city 
underneath. Well, I was I was a little person. Um, I, I I was four foot ten at my bar mitzvah. So wow. and I'm five foot yeah. eleven now. Um, but we were just really like, you know, we were nerds. We would go to, you know, we we at those days like getting together to listen to the Knicks on the radio before there was cable television. Or I had a fake ID when I was 12 that said I was 14 so I could go see wrestling at the garden. Right. Yes. Such a golden era of movies. You know, I mean, I think I, I saw the French Connection. I don't think I was 10 years old, you know? Like, what movie theaters would you go? Like, where were you going to the Paris? Like, what theaters were you going well, to? Well, we were going, there, there, there was the cinema studio. There was the, uh, there was the Baronet and the Coronet. There was cinema, cin- cinemas one and two. Cinema yes, on, three. Yes. Cinema three was at the Plaza. There was the Paramount where you would go in the Gulf and Western Building where you take that great escalator all the way downtown, downstairs. So... You know, and then there were there was the Thalia, where as a kid, you know, I, I went and saw Marx Brothers movies. So there was no shortage of, of movie houses, especially like around, you know, like, say, the 59th Street area. Yeah, right. Movie. Well, that's Cinema One, too. That The one was yeah. on, you had the one on 2nd Avenue and then the one on 1st Avenue, like all those, you know, yeah, on both sides of that street, too, on 2nd. Yeah. One was on the east side of the street and then a couple blocks up, it was on the west side of the street, the one where you would go down and into there was it. The yeah. Lowe's, there was the Lowe's Tower East on 72nd Street. There were all those movies on 86th Street, you know, so we would go and we would literally run from like one movie to the next. Um, and you and would do that after school? Would you do that like after school or, or on the weekends only? During school, I mean, during school hours, we would sometimes do things like not go to school and hang out in the lobby of the Essex House Hotel to get autographs from baseball players and things like that. Yeah, that's just an amazing sort of thing. And when you rattled off those theaters, like on Long Island, you know, I still know the names of all those theaters, but they were so far apart from one another and you just couldn't get there. There wasn't, yeah. you know, you would have to, it would be like um, a big deal. You know, you'd have to, 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 to go. And did you start at that time, have that thought, someone makes these movies? Like, did it start to occur to you that people made these things? Um, did you track them? Like, are you somebody who wrote down your impressions of movies or are you just bullshitting with no, your friends about I them? Just, and- I mean, you know, we just, we just loved them and would like go s- you know, we would go see them a second time, right? Or oh, yeah. sit through it a second time. But really had no, you know, had, like you were saying, there was no Hollywood connection. So it wasn't any, at that point, it wasn't anything like, oh, you know, I want to make movies. You know, it wasn't until jumping ahead, it really wasn't until I saw John Sayles, The Return of the Secaucus 7, where I said, God, I, you know, I'd like to make a movie like this and maybe I could make a movie like this. Um, and that, that was really the trigger. Yeah, for me, it was a couple of years later and it was, um, she's got to have it in Raising Arizona the same right. year when I was a junior at college. And it was like, oh my God, like a light bulb went right. off about a language of the cinema that I suddenly yeah. wanted to, be a part of or not not even an even up still that was like not complete thought it was just some thought right yeah. um and then how did you know well maybe american graffiti when i saw oh, yeah graffiti when i was in the seventh grade that was one where it opened me up to a whole era of music that i was unfamiliar with and i would play that record over and over again and that was where i did have a bit of a thought like somebody did this somebody somebody put this together together oh that's awesome really yeah and so then were you excited when jaws was coming out like i mean when um star wars was coming out like you knew yeah, i was much more into more of like the re- realistic movies i mean i i went and you know obviously i went and saw them but i was much more you know i was you know even as a preteen i think i was much more interested in like unmarried woman than i was in yes. star wars or, yes. or, or of course all the woody allen movies the, the unmarried woman poster, um, I I remember just trying to understand and staring at, and I yeah, completely relate to that. Um, so, when did and how did music hit you? Because like me, you are, I mean, you're one of the only people I've ever met. I could name them, you know, Pete Ganbarg, 
Rick Rubin, George, to some extent, when he, the things he cares about, Draculius, you and me, and uh, who are encyclopedic in the way, uh, this obsessive, loving way about records, bands, yeah. musicians. And yeah. like, so, you know, I started cataloging that shit for myself when I was 10, yeah. 11, 12. Yeah. You know, you're one of the few people in the world where if I said David Hungate, you would know who played guitar with the, you know, what band he was in and who the guitar player was immediately, you know. So what, uh, when did that start for you and how did that start? For well, you? I mean, again, I was sort of like the, I mean, I, 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 I bought records, right? Columbia, what was it? Columbia Record Club, whatever it is that we all signed up to. And then, you know, liner notes were like my Bible. Oh, I really. love them. So I that was really, notes. you know, that was really my, like my major in high school was like reading liner notes and trying to always make the connections, like who played with who, what came first, who influenced who. Um, but again, you know, we were lucky enough that we were still in the, in the glow of that golden era of rock and roll with, you know, the icons of music, the Neil Young's, Jackson Brown, Springsteen, Joni Mitchell, um, the Eagles, like all of these bands that were just, you know, they lived on a higher plane and the music was so, was so compelling. And then to be of the right age, you know, I was 18 when, I, I mean, when I, when I turned 18, 18 was like the drinking age in New York. So we were able to get into clubs at 16. So there were nights, there were weekends where I would go, you know, I'd go to a disco on Friday and to yes. the CBGBs on Saturday, you know, and you could get, and, and you could sort of, you know, kind of linger around adults. Well, one of the amazing things about that, 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 that tracks for me and, and, and is similar in certain ways. Like, uh, one of the things is you follow these, if you're an obsessed, if you're engaged with music in the way that both of us were, you go from those people you just mentioned who were kind of the pillars, but then, you know, you kind of follow tributaries off of them and then sometimes really far off of them. Like I became obsessed with new wave because I'm again, it's these couple of years younger. I became obsessed with new wave of British heavy metal, you know, and reading Kerrang and sounds and, Right. And ME and memorizing right. everything in those things and finding right. the records in little shops. Right. And you weren't right. the metal. I imagine. I don't know if you went to see the clash at Bond Street, but like yeah, you I could. did. I went. I saw the clash at Bond Street twice during that. Right. During that. Yeah. That makes total sense. Like, of course, you got to do that mind blowing thing. Yeah. You know, I was I was trying to see Iron Maiden at some weird um, right. place that was only 600 people. So yeah, where did that lead you? Like, were you punk? Well, I would say like, you know, it's like, it's almost like, I, I, I think we've probably talked about like, I love country music. I know you do too, yeah, me right? Too. Yeah. And so I would say probably it was the Eagles who were the gateway to country music, right? In terms of saying, okay, Bernie Leadon, if I'm mispronouncing his yep. name, took me to the Burrito Brothers, which took me to Merle Haggard, which, you know, so... And that would really excite me. And and I will say, you know, at 61, and I've been digging for records since I'm 10, I yeah. keep I keep getting rewarded. There's always stuff that I've never heard of. I mean, what's his name? That you know, did you get that Leo Niancatelli record? I'm pronouncing mispronouncing his name, the guy who played with the meters that he put this record out in 77 that just came out by Lightning Attic. And it's like it's a revelation, you know? No, it is. Those things are a revelation. I haven't listened to it yet. But yeah, those yeah. things are mine. I love that stuff, of course. And you still yeah. get excited. Like, yeah, I still get completely um, excited by that. Like when um, Alan Toussaint put out that like piano version of all his songs from New Orleans yeah. that came out like right around when he was di died. I remember for two weeks, I couldn't believe I had this right. trove of music right. still. Right? I mean, it's really very little in, our li in, in, in your life that has been such a constant, so constantly rewarding, right? It's like, as long as we're digging, we're still coming up with gems. Well, what's so great about what you do for a living, the primary thing you do for a living is 
you're constantly, I think, engaging with the emotional resonances of these recorded, you know, of these recordings, right? And it, it kind of like rewards you on many levels to dive in and to be able to feel it and then um, understand it, right? Yeah, I, look, it's 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 a treat, you know. I mean, there've been I mean, there's so many moments that we could talk about, but for instance, the first single I ever bought was Laughing by the Guess Who, right? And so, whatever, 5 years ago I was working with Antonio Campos on a movie called Christine and just found the right spot for it, and I can't tell you what a kick that is, right? That it, it was just it was like it come full circle, right? And, and that happens quite a bit. But really, I mean, I think that the misnomer a lot of times about what I do is, is you know, people think like, oh, you pick the songs for the movies or whatever it is. And that's not what I do is ideally what I do is I am the person that the filmmakers have to talk to about the music in the movie and to find like, okay, is there a logic or is there a through line that we can find? Or how do we compensate for something that isn't working as well as we'd like to? Or how do we really surprise people with, with, with either contrast or um, communion? And, and that's really what I do, is that I am the person that directors have to talk to about the music in the movie to both help imagine it and then to do some of the execution of it. Because as we know, there's a business side to it as well in terms of getting rights for things. No, I mean, of course, but that's a different, um, that, that's the least fun part of it, but obviously also an important part. But I don't want to, I don't want to jump all the way ahead because what's fascinating, I think, is that like where you end up, because yes, you have those conversations, but a lot of why you have those conversations is because of, you've spent a lifetime becoming the kind of person that a filmmaker wants to have those conversations with yeah, and not, not, not even as a, not because you were like, I want to be that, but because your passions and, and obsessions led you to become the kind of person who a director or showrunner would want to have those conversations. Yeah, I think so. Right? I mean, people ask me, like, what's, you know, I've been doing this now 30 years. Like, people ask me, like, what's different from doing it now, from doing it earlier in your career? And I say, well, I probably cry a little bit less, you know, where I would be in a situation where I was like begging somebody to use a song rather than one song rather than another well, song, you know? Yeah. And, I want to talk about that for sure. I want to talk about that. Um, no. And it's like, obviously a weird thing. I'll, I'll just say like one, a great moment for me with, with you was on super pumped, which obviously Dave and I came into that knowing a lot of what we wanted to do, but there was this one spot and you sent me five songs and, uh, Skyway by replacements is on there. And like, that's one of those songs that Dave and I have wanted to use in a thing for 20 years. And I wasn't front of mind for me. It's literally been for 20 years. We got to use Skyway right. and you right. sent it. And I remember that's those great things, which is like, I put the thing on and Skyway started. I was like, fuck, that's amazing. And I sent it to Levine and he's, and he said to me, he's like, Oh, you did it again. Of course. And I go, no, Randy sent it to me. And I was so happy um, because it was like that wavelength thing where it was exactly right. And that feeling, yeah, you sent me other things to be thorough and all the rest of it, and that's the job. You sent five things. But I remember hearing it and and feeling, it's a great thing for me, like I understood, right? I, you understood what I needed to make this moment in the show work. And I have to think that always for you feels great too when there's those moments where it's just like, yes, we see the world yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you know, it's a challenge, too, is that oftentimes, like oftentimes what's challenging is that is that songs mean different things to different people. Right. Especially like, say, when you're working in like the 70s. Right. Everybody right. has an opinion and all these songs have been in other things. And, you know, someone say, oh, I hate I always hated that song or. You know, that song brings back a bad memory or I saw that song in another movie. I don't want to use it. And so you're 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 having to navigate a lot of people's personal histories with music, too. You know, because it's like, well, you know, if you can take, you know, 
if you can take it at face value, it works. But some, you know, you always say like when it works, you feel it, right? But on the other hand, people bring their own musical baggage along with it, right? And, yes, of course. And and so that's always like, well, I can't really fight with that because it's you feel it, but um, it's that's an interesting dimension to it. Well, it's of course, so and like that's part of why Dave and I are always our own. I mean, Jim Black's done an amazing job on Billions in terms of clearing getting the music that we want, but David and I pick every song because right. that's just, I, I grew up like you, like I'm obsessed. The other job I could have done in the business was, I, I, I might not be able to be as, um, you know, uh, like you have a great gift to go through these things without freaking out. I think it would be that part, the interpersonal part of it might be more challenging for me, but the, uh, you know, I have such a clear sense of what I want the sonic landscape to be um, but still recognize that what you do and the way you do it is a real value add for something where I don't fully know exactly what it should be. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know what? I think, I think that you guys have, a, you know, what you guys bring to the process is that you, 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 you always, you always have the storytelling in mind and some of the emotional subtleties that you're trying to render with music. And, and, and that's a great strength in terms of, of, of doing it and having a whole episode or a whole, or a whole series feel like it's emotionally cogent, right? Is that you guys really, it's, 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 it's almost like the way you, 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 you play it sometimes putting music in movies is a bit like checkers and sometimes it's a bit like chess. And I think yes. that you guys play chess with the music that you're using. Thank you, as, as you do too, um, obviously the best. So here, you go off to college, like, because I don't wanna just quickly like write it off, cause like a life in the circus is a really scary thing, right? And we set off young and, and, and you know, Randy, you are an incredibly smart person with a high ability to synthesize information and remember it. Like you could have been a lawyer or a doctor and been really successful at it. You could have been a high level executive. If you There's all these options. I would have been a wonderful doctor. Yeah, there are all these <laughs> options, right? Um, well, you would have made the patient laugh. What happened was, was that, right? So I went to Brown. Yeah. Uh, I was an English major. I had a very fun time at Brown. Um, I read a lot of books. I graduated, I took a semester off, so I, had, I graduated in the middle of a year. I had no sense of what, there, however it happened, I didn't think about what was gonna happen, had to happen after school. So I realized for me, the notion of going to law school was apocalyptic, right? And it was almost like giving up on myself. And so- yes. What I really wanted to do, I decided was, well, why don't I write a script about Brown had a very legendary radio station that I had done some time on. And I wrote this script with a friend of mine. And, you know, long story short, people wanted to buy it. We decided that we wanted to make it. It was called A Matter of Degrees. And it was basically about right. that moment where it was at that moment where what they had been calling college radio became alternative music. And so we were accepted in the lab at Sundance and we figured out like how you raise money to make a movie. And we made this movie it came out in 1990. It was called a matter of degrees. And we did a soundtrack with Atlantic records with all new songs. And after that experience, which I didn't direct the movie, I, I realized what I really wanted to do is I wanted to work with great film directors and I had done the music on the film. And if I had made that my area of expertise and I enjoyed it and had some facility, had a, an, an instinct for it, that would be my point of contact. And that's how it kind of worked out. You um, really had that whole thought in your head from the experience making the first thing was like, there's a niche here because I, it's so funny. Like I was doing that job for Warren, uh, Warren Light on that that move his first movie when I was at Electra and I remember I I was the Electra person they didn't have a music supervisor so I was I was just like helping to put this soundtrack together for Warren and I would go to the editing room and like 
I had the exact, I was just like, oh, I don't want to be this guy. I want to be that guy. Right. And like, you know what I mean? I had this sort of other mm -hmm. uh, sense of it, which was, was like, this is fun for me. But that, I had never considered I could be someone like that, but that guy's not that different from me. I love Warren to this guy, day. That, you mean a director? Warren Light. Warren yeah. Light is the writer-director, and he's right. wonderful. I mean, you know, he, he wrote um, Sideman. Yeah, he, he won I, the- I, I, know, I, I know Warren. And I was like, oh, I, that seems possible. But so you had this thought, like there's this gap or something like, because who's I doing it? Want, I, wanted to work, I wanted to work with great filmmakers. And I knew, and I just figured, okay, it, it did. It came as a fully formed idea is that if I make this my focus, Amazing. this will be the way that I will be able to engage. Amazing. Yeah. And The Night We Never Met, that was the name of Warren's movie. How did you, how did you take the first step? Like, so, so well, you had so, that, because I remember- you and I met shortly thereafter. I remember you started working in like record business offices and stuff. I would right. see. So, well, that was a little bit later. So, so Christine killer film started to make movies and they started asking me to work on the music and then, and then they continued to make movies. And then, you know, I met, I did right out of the box. I worked on kids and that was sort of that, that incredible, that, that drew some attention to me, because we had had that crazy hit, natural one that that defied all logic, and and then you know I met Wes and we started to work together right as he was finishing Bottle Rock. On kids, were you working with? I want us to go slower. On kids, mm -hmm. so that was your first time really being a music supervisor. I had done I had done the Crossing Guard with Sean Penn, right like, right before, or I was still doing it maybe. And then I I I I got sent I, I got sent the script to Kids, which the title page read Kids by the world famous writer Harmony Kareen. Harmony Kareen. I was gonna say, yeah. How did you and Larry, how did you manage that? Because one thing about a music supervisor is like a lot of people are appealing to you. Yeah. Like a lot of people are trying to like get their like so I imagine between Harmony and Larry, it must have been really intense. Well, it was very intense. Um Harmony was really the guiding musical light. Larry weighed in on things, but, but Harmony had the vision for it. He wanted to work with Lou Barlow. And right. I basically, I basically aligned with Harmony and, and tried to support him. And not, not with that there was any battle, really any real battles that I remember, but, you know, I remember going record shopping with Harmony and, 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 and just, he had just a sort of really fresh musical perspective. Um, and then we had like, you know, a, a real, a real success with the film. Yes. Yes. Is part of the job at that nascent stage or something, or I, I guess I'd say it this way, how much of the job at that nation nascent stage with, with whoever the guiding creative force of the film right. is, whether it's the writer, you know, every movie, it's someone you got to right. figure it out. Uh, how much of it involves like trying to, crawl inside that person's brain like really listen to them and then decide when you're gonna have enough of that that you can start downloading or disseminating back yeah, to them I mean, how that, does that dynamic work yeah i mean you you know i think that's a very appropriate way to put it is that generally there's a guiding force sometimes it's the director sometimes it's the producer whatever i tend to align with those people right and they give you clues as to things that they're that they have in mind and you try to interpret it and expand it right you know um and and so that's really the 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 initial task like okay anything that you have referenced i'm going to give you all of it and everything adjacent to it right um, and particularly when you're when you're doing say period pieces that are in more obscure periods, you know, like you're dealing with the twenties or the forties or the thirties where people don't, they don't know offhand what else is out there or, or doing a, a movie that is grounded in classical music, which is not my area of expertise. Right. But then you can, you dive in, I imagine. Right? Yeah. I mean, I become a student of it, you know, and find, and find experts and, you know, and that's where sort of a, a, a good education will help you like do the homework.
when you start doing that, so you do kids, kids is successful, really, and, and also kind of in all the important ways, meaning it's an incredible um, artistic calling card because of where it lived in the, in the culture at that right. moment. Right, it, it was a cultural moment. And what's your next step? Like, how do you, because in the beginning, I can't imagine on those crossing garden that, how are you living? I'm always interested in this. Like, what kind of place were you living in? And did you have roommates? Like, you weren't earning like a huge living, I wouldn't think. No, but I, again. I, you know, you know, I, 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 I lived, I lived, you know, pleasantly, you know, my, my, my girlfriend who, who's now my wife was like a producer at ABC news. So like together we, we could put it you together. Cobbled it together. Yeah. 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 And were you living in were you living in Manhattan? Where were you living? Yeah, we're living in um on the west side, 25 West 68th Street, a sublet that I found in the back of the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, see, this is what I want. Awesome. And and did you, as part of the job back then, begin engaging also with the record business side of things to start to get exposed to new music? And how does that how did that all work? Well, that was all, that was all a moment. Like if you remember where, you know, everything was, people were still buying records. So soundtracks would sell. So there was a lot of, you know, record companies would finance the music budgets of a lot of movies, which I never, that was never really my thing, but I dealt yes. with it. Um, and so to your point about being in a record company, so Peter Kupke, when he was at Atlantic Records, he bought the soundtrack to a matter of degrees, right? And yes. so we then became close friends. And he was like, well, why don't I come and have an office in, in our offices and let's find things to do together. And then the first thing we did was kids. They, he picked yes. up the soundtrack to kids. So, right. that's so that. you had an office up there and then did you start sort of like talking to A&R people to see what records they were making uh, yeah, so you would I know would what talk, was next? I would, I would talk to, any, you know, I would talk to people, talk to people. I was my bit, you know, as you know, you get inundated with people trying to pitch you things. And there were people whose musical tastes I respected or I got to know where I would say, I'm interested in anything you think is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. And that's yeah, how that's a great approach. Yeah, that's yeah. A, and and how did you train yourself to learn how to really talk with artists? Like I will say, like the best thing about growing up the way I did, I mean, among many things, but maybe the best thing was like on the occasions my dad took me to a recording studio and I got to watch him get a lead vocal from somebody. Yeah. When he would have to go himself because the singer was whatever, and he would have to coax a, a vocal right? right and i watched not even consciously learning i was 11 and tw but i i absorbed right what it meant to guide a creative person somewhere right which as a director or a showrunner produce it's like an invaluable thing right yeah so how did you learn how to have those conversations i guess gradually yeah you know i guess gradually well, I would say that one of my, one of the most important assets and maybe the most important asset that I bring to the process is I know what I like, right? I know what I like, you know, where some people say like there are, um, there, there are A&R people or music people who they have a nose for what's good, Right. Yes. And then there's some that they say, oh, they have an ear for it, right? So I yes, always, great I distinction. Always, I, I had an ear for it, right? What I liked. And so I guess I always tried to, at points, try to be as genuine about things and as delicate as I could be when something was not was not headed in the right direction, you know? And Sometimes it was the right way to approach it. And sometimes things were, you know, it, you were dealing with people who were incapable of taking any critique. Yes. Well, I wonder also how much of it has to do with preparation, because this is another thing I will say about the people who are the best at the job, like as you are. Like, I know even for, for, for me, 
I am, I spend way more time thinking about the music of my stuff than any regular human would imagine is possible. Right. Right. I am making lists all the time. I am listening to podcasts about music. I am, if I'm riding in a car, I am tuning to a station and serious that I'm writing songs down all fucking day long, right? Yeah. So I can imagine that for you, it must be t 10 times that. And so talk a little bit about what that process is when you're gonna go make a movie with Wes and he sends you a script and you right. think about it and you talk about the era. Like I would imagine that for every song that lands in the movie, there are 30 behind it that you would have had there. Is that, is that you would have had to oh, really I, think I say, would explain say especially it. Especially like with, say, like Grand Budapest Hotel, right? Which, yes. again, we, we, you know, set in sort of this fictional middle Europe and like, okay, how do we, how do we get, a, get our heads around all of the musical possibilities? So, I mean, I could read, I, I mean, I have my, my iTunes here, right? And so let's go to Grand Budapest yeah, Hotel. So, okay. Grand Budapest Hotel, 30s Foxtrot, Grand Budapest Hotel, Alpine Folk, Austria, Belle Epoque Songs, Bongo Centric, Caesar Frank Sonata for Violin, Clarvis Demos, Collected Waltz, Symbolom New for West, Symbolom Selects, Dance Hall, Drinking German, Drums, England, Euro Folk and Military, France, German, uh, German dances, Viennese dances, Gypsy, Handel, Hofglas, Zauerli, Hungary, Italy, Karas, Komita, Kramer versus Kramer, mandolin music, military, more early vocal music, more Vivaldi, Musette, Mystery Island by Bernard Herrmann, music that I put together for the New York City premiere, uh, orchestra chamber. Right. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, so that's sort of like, the rain but but to build those lists right. a lot of thinking and reading and imagining right i mean in other words to build those lists how much time goes into that and what is that time like like dude are you i mean i know you are you're are you reading books I'm, about the period yeah, are you yeah. going and looking at picture books yeah, of the all of yeah it. like what's reading happening books going online calling a guy who owns a record store in Hamburg, who's who, you know, like all that right. stuff. I'll, I'll tell you a funny, a funny story about just that movie was that, so the movie opens up, there's this whistling, right? And so the whistling, the Alpine whistling, it's called Zowerly is the name of the style of whistling. So uh, we have a piece of music that we get from Werner Herzog that Wes has remembered is in a Werner Herzog movie. Wow. So they get it for us. And so we yeah. find this group, this record, this group, they have a record out, Zourly. So I arrive on location to just sort of be with Wes at the start of the movie to just go over things that we need to deal with on camera. And Wes says, well, let's get these guys. We were in Germany. He's like, let's get these guys in Austria to like come down in the next couple of days and let them audition all the music that they have. Right. So, so yeah. I try to make contact. I need, I, I call Peter Kupke. He speaks German. He's German. So I get Peter in touch with a guy who's the band leader that I get through a label, whatever else it is. So Peter calls me and he goes, it's not going to happen. And I go, why is it? Why? What's like, why is it not going to happen? Well, the leader of the band, he's the postman in the town. And the guy who's the <laughs> band master, he's the, he's the baker in the town. They're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. You know, so that was that that was sort of a, one of those things, the, the impediments. Right. But you somehow you found that yeah. music, even though that's yeah, right. That's the kind of like. So then this goes back to how do you not because you said offhandedly, but I actually know you go, I don't cry as much. And, and that's funny, of course, a great line. But also, like, we all try so hard and put so much of ourselves into all yeah. of this. And like, you know, you do all that work yeah. and sometimes it goes against picture and it might not work Yeah. or it goes against picture and the director might go, I want something. I know this is what I wanted. Right. 
and now I want zither right, music, right. right? And so how do you keep your equanimity? Well, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't. You know, sometimes I don't. Right. You know, I sometimes, you know, so, sometimes I really, I put forward my argument with all strength possible. And then sometimes it's sort of like, yes. Hey, I heard you. I can't do it. It's not, it, I don't feel, I don't feel the same way you do. And then you're going to you just, just turn not, yeah, yourself you around and to, go like, find live it. With it, you know, but also I think that, you know, people who are confident in filmmaking they're, they, 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 you know, I, I think, I hope is that like people, people want passionate people working with them. Right? 100%. So it's like, you know, there are a lot of people I think who just don't give a shit and just want to excuse my language. And who want to just move on and be done, you know, where, you know, I've been known to come back the next day and just be like, hey, I can't sleep because I think you're making the wrong choice. Well, I mean, you've you you have I mean, you have seen firsthand how obsessive I get about a 25 second piece of music. I'm like. If I can't have, because like you build such emotional, you know, you know, this 25 seconds of this piece can work because I have this music that's going to take me from here to here. And if I don't have that, I'm going to be alone, naked, uh, buffeted by, uh, right. you know, well, the wind all, and the sun also, and the rain. It's forever, you know? right? It's like, it's forever. So it's like, I mean, look, I go to the mat for my filmmakers because like I know... I know you really do. that like you will watch this and for the rest of your life it will hurt you. Right? If the if the if the if you had to settle and you and it's or it's something that you didn't really want and it's there, it will bother you forever. Well, that's the thing. And I remember calling you and being like, I really need this thing. And you got the head of a, you know, you like got the head of a music conglomerate because the rights were murky because someone like had died or was in the hospital. And, you know, you had to chase this piece of music down. That was not an expensive piece of music. It was just like, we couldn't get who right. it was. You couldn't, and you couldn't put, you couldn't, you couldn't make the, the connection. The, the connection. And, 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 and you understood and you were like, I get it. I'm going to go get this piece of music for you and yeah. did it. And, and, and it's, um, and look, this is great about, you know, you're, you work um, in partnership with another one of my dear friends and a lifelong friend of yours, Josh yeah. Deutsch. Right. And one of the great things is you two as a unit really do understand how much this stuff matters to the people you're yeah. working with. It, you know, again, it's like people say, oh, you know, oh, it's not, you know, you hear, oh, it's a movie, it's not brain surgery, it's not rocket science. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like it is, it, it is. This is like as important to the people who are doing this as anything that anybody does, you know? When you begin a project, because I think this can help people across, you know, actually this could help somebody who sold the script and is about to go work with the director and producer or an actor coming onto a set. How do you um, begin to understand a director or showrunner, filmmaker you're gonna work with? Like, how do you feel them out to find the best version of you to work with them you, you, you know you know what i mean is it yeah. do they want me to come on strong would they prefer right. a soft touch i mean how, right. how does that process work for you uh, you know I, I mean just like you feel anybody out for anything really you know it's like or, or you make a mistake you know or you make a mistake you come on too strong or you're you know or you're yeah. you know you're 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 too confident or like I had a situation this past year where it's a director who will go unnamed, who, who I don't know why he thinks he should be directing movies, but it was like, you know, he was sort of saying something about, oh, the studio says da da da, it's going to be too much money. And I just was like, don't worry about the money. Like, don't worry right. about the money. And he was like, and then I heard from the producers, like, you know, he thought that was a bit, that was just kind of a bit glib. And I was like, well, I mean, he didn't understand that I, I, Randy Poster, can actually go help this problem. If you ask around, they'll tell you that I generally can figure it out. And but that was a person. Then I just said, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to take a step back in conversation. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. How does something as special as the relationship you have with Wes start and grow? Like, obviously, you're more than people who are collaborators. You're dear friends and you're very involved in the overall gestalt of the film. But that can't be how it's how it began. So, like, what were the strands that led to this incredibly close collaboration? Well, we met and we hit it off just in terms of just and just sort of like just talking about like as as you do with your friends movies and books and records was this for rushmore after bottle rocket had you seen bottle Bottle rocket yeah i got involved i produced the bottle rocket soundtrack with wes right and then it was basically like with with rushmore it was you know we we had we went back and forth with all those songs and it just you know, I mean, my commitment was just like, I'll get everything you want to get on a movie ever. And, and, I, and I became one of his first, you know, I became, well, he lived in America, his first, I'm still probably among his first two or three readers, you know, reading pages as yes. they go along. Um, and, and, and he just has such a, you know, he has, he has such a commitment to his, point of view um and like scorsese you know aren't really bound by the rules that people think they can establish for how you can you um and and it's just been a wonderful you know west, working with west the movies have taken me around the world um uh there's a wonderful community that's grown out of working on these movies whether it was like meeting Jason Schwartzman as a teenager on Rushmore. Um, and, 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 you know, and we have a lot of fun, you know, we have a lot of fun working together. How, how does it work though? Like, um, you know, I've spoken to many people who've cut his films and, you know, most of the way cutting a film works is the director comes in and an editor has assembled a scene and then they go from there. And the way Wes works is he assembles the scene with the editor because he has it in his mind and he doesn't want to see an assembly unless he's part of building it. Right. And so, and, and like, I, I think, you know, he's one of my absolute favorite filmmakers of all time. I'm a very, very, very big Wes Anderson fan. And, well, you, have a lot, um, you have a lot to look forward to. I can't wait. Yeah, I know. Um, I, and, and, but, um, yeah, I can't. I can't wait for the, for the next movie. But, but with somebody who has that clear vision of how the thing's supposed to feel, sound, look, all the rest of it, how does the process work of 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 finding music and and presenting choices? Something interesting happened in the process. Is that when we made. Um, fantastic Mr. Fox, when you do animation, you have to do an animatic, a full animatic. And so, and basically what that is, is like somebody draws all the scenes and they, they're kind of like, it's not, it's, it's very rough, but it's basically, it moves. Right. And Wes records all the voices. um, And we put some music in there and so that's really a map. And we've and since Fantastic Mr. Fox, even on live action, Wes does an animatic of the whole movie. Awesome. And so that really is a way that like you get a sense of like, okay, this is what this might look like. This is how the comedy or the drama is going to play out. And then we've already had conversations about some of the music components and 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 then we just sort of take it from there and i have a sense of like okay this is where the spots are hey i'm looking for i need we need another uh cowboy song right so i gather all the cowboy songs and you know and then there have been movies though like you know with rushmore it was all very specific and plotted out before we started what about tenenbaums like tenenbaums where music is so crucial right yeah Um, heartbreakingly beautiful how did that was that scripted music did you guys talk about it at the scripted stage yeah yeah, we talked about it at the scripted stage we gathered music but there was you know there was discovery in in royal tenenbaums like darjeeling limited you know, Wes had this idea, like, I, I want to use the music of Sachet Ray and the music that was made for Merchant Ivory's Indian, Indian-based films. And so, 
like I, you couldn't go to Tower Records and buy like Sachet Ray's greatest hits. So I ended up going to Calcutta and sitting with the Sandip Ray, Sajit Ray's son and heir to like coax them to digitize all the scores that he did. And then, then we just would figure it out. That scene, that's like you being a character in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, to go do I felt, that. It felt, yeah. It felt that way for sure. And, um, and, and for instance, say with Life Aquatic, which I used to meet West on Sundays to read script pages. Like one day there was a line in the script that said, Pele comes on board and plays a David Bowie song in Portuguese. Right. Yeah. And that was, that was it. Right. That was the only thing that, that was the only reference ever. And then we, then we found Sal George who, who was such a beautiful musician that we went and we recorded 14 that was incredible. David Bowie yeah. songs in Portuguese, which he had to like, he didn't know all the songs. So we had to go in the studio just so he could like figure them out um, to, and be able to practice to them. And then, and then on set at the end of the day, Wes would say, okay, George, get on, uh, get on stage and do queen bitch now or whatever it would be. That must've just been amazing. How did um, you begin working with Mr. Scorsese? So I did a move, which this is, this is, this is shows you how you never know. This is why saying yes is always better than saying no, because you never know what will, what, where, where things will lead you. I did a movie years ago called Mona Lisa Smile, which had a lot of on-camera music from the 50s. We recorded versions with Trevor Horn, recorded versions of, of, classic pop songs from the fifties with all sorts of contemporary artists. And Joe Reedy was the first AD and Joe yes. Reedy worked with Marty for a long time. And so when they were doing the aviator, which um, uh, uh, had a lot of on-camera music, Joe introduced us and that's how we started. And I think I've just finished my 12th project with, with uh scorsese i mean he is so specific I and mean, there's nobody better to spend time with talking about m movies i often say he, he he is you know my i mean he's there's 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 marty and everyone else um even and i say that as somebody that he fired twice but i love him and uh he's my i just a total hero in every way um but he is very specific right and and so and sometimes he really knows. I mean, I even saw working on the science. He really knows exactly the version of the record. You know, right. five people cut this song. The third guy who cut it, um, the tempo right. was there. Like he's so. Right. So how does that back and forth work with with him? What do you bring to the table there with him? Well, there are things there. There, there, there are components to it that he wants to. He wants to hear what I think. Yes. And then there's an on-camera component where we have to, you know, pick songs yes. to record. Um, and then, you know, it, it, we go back and forth, you know, we go back and forth. He, like you know, when he has an idea that he's going to make something and will he, you'll hear about it. And then are you immediately, are you sending stuff? Yeah, he'll, basically, he'll say to me, there's look, there's sometimes where he just, know, it's exactly what he wants, right? He's had it in his mind. And then sure. there are other times he says, I like it, but is there any, should I think of, should I listen to anything else? Got it. Right. Um, and, um, and he's also like, he, you know, an there's an example that, that just in terms of how he works, like we did this in the Wolf of Wall Street, there's this wedding sequence, right? And so we got Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. He wanted, he wanted a bit the band and we got Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings to do Goldfinger, right? right? So we went and we recorded like five songs with Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings, um, just because we would need, you need another song or you never know or something will turn out. And, and these are all things that, you know, song teams like, oh, great, yes, you know, let, let's, let's do that. So we're on set and I get called over to camera and I'm gonna name drop. And so Leo DiCaprio is there yeah. and he basically says, I want to dance. I, I think I'd like to dance to, I have this idea to dance to Baby's Got Back, right? So, I mean, we haven't recorded Baby's Got Back, but I have Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings there. Yes. Right? 
So I, so I said, all right, so let me get them to, to figure out what it looks like and how to get the basics down. They'll be, they won't be so close up that then we'll record it. We'll record it and, and we'll figure it out. So, and that's when the character does that crazy dance, which is one of the, one of the most well-known moments of the movie where he does the robotic dancing at the thing. Right. So we go, I go in, I finally, I see a cut of the movie and uh, we have, we play Goldfinger. We go into like a second of like babies got back. And then all of a sudden he puts on Bo Diddley. Uh, uh, um, it's not, what's not you, you, you pretty thing, right? Like you, like the record comes on. It's like, you know, like the logic of it is completely suspend. Logic is completely suspended, but it works, you know, and nobody else would do that. Nobody else would have the courage to do that. You know, that, that movie is a, a towering, towering, towering achievement. I, I, it grows in my estimation, like every year. I mean, I can make the argument that it's his masterpiece actually. So like, I, I fucking love it. And that scene is unbelievable. Um, when he's about to make something, are you sending stuff like the way you would to West? Do you, do you send Marty stuff just to drive around and listen to, or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in this, in this, in this, in this, uh, the next movie, the, uh, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. We're in a very tricky area of music. It's like the movie opens up in 1919. So this is pre-radio and you know, uh, so that that was just sort of a lot of like, again, I was on a path of discovery and sharing the discovery with him. Cause it's like field, I mean, field music and stuff. Yeah. Right? And like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know race, all that stuff. There's, there's yeah. race records and field. Are you like Mississippi Sheiks and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, so awesome. I can't wait to, hear you know, that. and so that's, that's sort of where we, we did Jason Isbell play, does Jason Isbell play music in it? No, he's just acting only. Yeah. He's terrific in it. I'm Jason, sure he is. I mean, he's the Jason best. Isbell, uh, um, uh, uh, Jack White. Yeah. Oh my God. Who's a famous, uh, blues harpist, older cat. Um, it's not Toad Steelman. It's, Anyway, he has, but there's like four musicians in the movie who don't, who don't play music. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Jason did a day acting on billions kind of as a warm up, and, and cause he was like, and it was great. Cause he got to just get the sense of what it's like to do that kind of thing on, yeah, um, yeah. on set. Um, Randy, what are you, uh, it's so funny, you know, I got an, an email from like someone, a publicist a while ago, And I was like, well, of course, Randy just could ask me. It was like very formally presented, but I don't know. I don't remember. What is the project you're working on? The compilation records, or so? So during the pandemic, I, I mean, I was working remotely on a bunch of stuff, but very much aware of all the bird life around me. Yes, and the bird song. And I have a friend that I know from advertising, a friend of mine named Rebecca Reagan, who's a very passionate environmentalist, and she said, "Well, you should ask all your music people to create music." built around bird song and that will help draw attention both to the beauty of birds and bird song, but also a way to draw people's attention to the crisis facing birds, which is enormous. And if you do what you need to do to protect the birds, it's the same thing you need to do to protect the planet, um, the environment. And so I started asking around a lot of film composers initially who everybody was kind of looking for an assignment, you know, particularly people who had, um home studios and so we made this we, we started to gather tracks and and we have 172 pieces of original music and then i had actors and poets and friends read bird themed poems so it's a 240 track record over 20 lps and what's it called and what's it Here called it is it's called for the, for birds. the birds the bird song project and it, 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 you can use it to exercise and you could use it as a doorstop and you actually could use it as a, as a weapon. Nice. Who are some of the, uh, name three artists who are on it? Yo-Yo Ma. Awesome. 
Elvis Costello, Yoko Ono, and the guys from the Circle Jerks. Well, there you go, folks. Get go get that birdsong project thing. And um I'm I'm so glad we got to do this on Mike Randy. You know, uh it's true, I do think you're one of one. You're the best uh person who does the the job that you do because of your love of film and your love of of music and your indefatigable spirit about all this. So uh really glad to have this combo. 